Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We have a special guest with us today. His name is Scott Annual. And uh, Scott, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much. And of course, we have the other two normal yahoos, Tim and Andy, are here too. So how are so, you guys? <laughs> I'm doing good today. I've had, I have some really good coffee I'm drinking. So, you know, things mm-hmm. are good. And we have a really good, uh, it's the Spurgeon blend from Midwestern. A buddy of mine sent me back a bag. So if I grow a beard during this episode, you'll know why. <laughs> Although hopefully I don't go. go theologically in too many different directions. <laughs> yeah. It's quite, it's quite tasty. It's a light roast. You know, it's good. Scott, Thanks, you like coffee? I do not. No, I don't. I don't believe in in uh, controlled substances. So, oh, that hurts, Scott. You hurt me. Do you? Hey, are you like a tea fan or? I do. Or I do drink tea, but I'm I'm just water. You know, most of the day. So, yeah, yeah. It's really healthy of you. Thanks for pointing yeah, that out to absolutely. us. Absolutely. Right. None of us I, feel you know <laughs> less healthy now. <laughs> I have started a transition in the summer of less coffee and trying to get to tea. I feel very odd walking into the coffee shop and not I, I tried liking coffee and I just I don't know I just don't like the taste mm-hmm. and uh, it's, so it's hard you have to want it I hated yeah. it for a long time and <laughs> until <laughs> until pop was making me too fat and then giving me health yeah. problems right. almost like you have to train your affections to like it so <gasps> hey, like that. hey there's there's Tim, some applicability there hold your horses there Tim we'll get there okay so I, I, I feel like we should we should say though that that was one of the best segues Tim has ever made yeah. to recognize that generally he's just like you know zero to 60 but that was good Tim I'm gonna give you two points good job yeah he normally just jumps right in so let me uh what I like to do I'll read read your Twitter bio Scott now that okay. should give us a nice overview of who you are and then we'll ask a couple questions there so at Scott annual if you're one of those Twitter folks and says he's the executive vice president and editor-in-chief of G3 Ministries. So what is G3 Ministries? Yeah, so it started as a conference a little over 10 years ago out of Praise Mill Baptist Church in Douglasville, just west of Georgia. Uh, Within the first year, the conference exploded with attendance uh, to the point that now uh, we have it in at a big convention center in Atlanta, and the last national conference in October has 6,500 people. Um, so it's just a theology, started as a theology conference, just focusing on doctrine and uh, a lot of people come. It's, it's family oriented. It's really a great conference. And then about two years ago, Josh Weiss, the pastor of Praise Mill and the president of G3 uh, decided to expand the ministry to be more than a conference. And so he hired Virgil Walker uh, to come on as executive uh, director of operations to run the conferences, basically. And then he hired me to sort of oversee things from an administrative standpoint, uh, but then also to his vision was to expand to a content producing ministry. So we started G3 Press, we've started publishing books, we've got a blog where we get at least one, one thing up every day. Uh, we're going to be doing podcasts and video resources and courses and all sorts of stuff. So it's a, it's a ministry uh, committed to the sufficiency of scripture is sort of mainly our, our central goal and uh, to equip and encourage and edify the local church. That's awesome. So then the next thing it says is professor of pastoral theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. So yeah. how'd you get into teaching? Talk to yeah. talk us about that role. So the last 10 years, actually, I was on faculty at Southwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. 
So I've been kind of in the seminary world for the last uh, 10, 12 years, came out with G3 in the fall. So leaving the full-time teaching there, but um, then Owen Strand contacted me and asked me if I would join the faculty there at Grace. So I'm teaching right now a class on worship. It's all online during the summer, and then we'll be there on campus in August. But then I do other uh, adjunct things. I've taught um, a DMIN course at Central Seminary in Minneapolis a couple of times. I'm teaching a course in the fall at another seminary in Texas. So I, I'm still kind of keeping my uh, keeping my feet in the seminary world because I love I love teaching. I love investing in pastors uh, in particular, and my main area of focus is on worship. And so. Um, I'm, you know, that's what I write on and that's what I've been teaching on primarily, primarily. So I'm really thankful to be able to, even though my full-time job is here at G3, uh, and obviously there's teaching that is, uh, with, with my job here that I can continue to be investing in seminary education as well. Yeah. And I know it's not on your Twitter, but you have a podcast as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's by the waters of Babylon. Um, and, uh, pr- pretty much weekly and more sort of thought pieces, short form, 20 minutes usually is my goal. Um, just dealing with all sorts of issues related to, you know, the tagline is uh, uh, dealing with Christianity in a post-Christian culture. You know, that's Psalm 137 by the waters of Babylon, that imagery, uh, which is the title of one of my books as well. So just trying to, you know, work through various issues in the present culture and thinking through them biblically. Yeah. I think Tim was the one that turned me on to that. And okay. I love when you walk through the hymns around Christmas. Yeah, I loved that content. So yep, if you're right. looking for another podcast to listen to, guys. It's a great one too. So thanks. Uh, what we're going to do in this episode today is uh, we're not going to go around the table and do books and business, but we're going to talk about a book. Scott just had a new book come out titled "Changed from Glory into Glory: The Liturgical Story of the Christian Faith." And I'll just pause. You're quoting probably my favorite verse in the Bible. So okay. uh, great, great, great stuff. But so we're going we're gonna to get into a discussion of what that book is about, but we want to kind of prime the pump first to get into a worship discussion. So we have some prime the pump type questions for Scott, and I think Tim's going to kick us off here. So you, you've written a couple of books on uh, the affections. Well, actually, like all your books seem to be about the affections, but yeah. two recent ones, uh, Let the Little Children Come, and we've recommended that book on our podcast previously, and you talk about how... Uh, we go about as parents training the affections of our children. And so I thought it might just be a nice opener question. How do we go about training our affections? Yeah, no, I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I think this is a, a, a grossly overlooked area among Christians today. Uh, you know, e- even those who are really concerned about theology, doctrine, which is, I, I am too, um, but we have been influenced by modernism, by sort of enlightenment rationalism, even conservative, you know, theologically competent Christians, we don't realize how much we've been impacted by enlightenment rationalism to where we sort of conceive of Christianity as merely having right head knowledge. And I don't want to minimize that whatsoever. Doctrine's important. Theology is important. We have to have that knowledge. But it's instructive that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't say the greatest commandment is to know theological truth about God. He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Now, you have to know theological truth in order to love God. Otherwise, you might be loving a false God. So, again, I'm not minimizing theology whatsoever. 
But this area of the affections is often overlooked. And the fact of the matter is, uh, it's also important to think about the affections because the affections, our affections are ultimately what drive our actions. Mm -hmm. Intellectual knowledge is not enough. We all could probably tell stories of pastors who knew all the right theology, who nevertheless fall into immorality. Their problem was not that they didn't know it was wrong. Their problem was that they, they hadn't formed affection for God and his truth. And so a number of years ago, I began a ministry called Religious Affections Ministries, quoting from Jonathan Edwards. This was a central part of his theology. And it really, like you said, uh, Tim, it's been sort of part of my ministry ever since. It, it's important to think about this. So we're, we're, we're shaping minds, we're shaping theology. And in some ways, that's a little easier. Preaching, teaching, reading scriptures, studying the scriptures, meditating upon scriptures, you know, we, we can, we, we modernists know how to do didactic teaching. It's this area of training the affections that's a little more difficult. And that's where things like worship, our regular, the regular practices of our corporate worship on the Lord's Day, the regular practices of our family worship, our devotional habits as individuals. Uh, certainly, we are shaping our theology in all of those things, but also we are shaping our affections. Uh, it is really through sort of habit-forming practices that our affections are shaped. We're disciplining our God-given faculties to be in line with what Scripture teaches, and that happens through these regular means of grace, Bible reading, prayer, singing, uh, all of these sorts of things. Uh, but also, this is what God has given us things like music for. Music doesn't just communicate information to our brains, although it does in the, in the lyrics, but the poetry, the imagery, the musical forms themselves go beyond our mind and begin to shape our affections. They begin to shape our imagination of who God is. Mm -hmm. And that impacts how we view God and it impacts how we live. That's so, great. You've used a couple of illustrations in Changed from Glory into Glory and yeah. in uh, Let Little Children Come. Maybe what would be an analogy or an illustration to help our listeners catch this idea of shaping affections? Yeah. Well, um, you know, so there, there's a number of different ways to approach this. In, in Change from Glory into Glory, I, I delve into the issue of worldview, or sometimes uh, we, we could describe it as the moral imagination. Some theologians have described it that way. And again, you know, evangelicals like to talk about worldview, but a lot of times we just mean thinking the right things again. Right. And I want to I want to differentiate theology, right thought, from the affections or worldview or imagination, which are more like the lenses through which we view reality. So mm -hmm. a lot of times it's not something we consciously think about. When I'm looking at you right now through these lenses, I'm not looking at the lens. In fact, most of the time we don't even we don't even remember we have lenses on. But if my lenses are dirty or if they are uh, you know, tinted a different color, that is going to influence the way that I view everything. And that is what worldview or imagination or this life of the affections really, I mean, this is when the Bible talks about the heart, that is what it's talking about. It's talking about the way in which we view the world, the lenses through which we view reality. And so it's very important that we make sure that sometimes we do take off the lenses, that we clean them off, that we make sure that our lenses are being formed by scripture so that when we put them back on and we're not thinking about them anymore, we are viewing life and reality through proper lenses that have been shaped by God's word. 
Nice. I like it. Thanks. Really appreciated so, your section on worldview. I teach worldview in apologetics and yeah. I had not read Nagel. I know he's like big in the field. I'd read Sire. All the stuff you quoted by Sire was, yeah. I was just in heaven. But I have said in class before that I, the reason I'm so convinced of worldviews, it seems like what the Bible says is the heart. Yes. And then you had those quotes from Nagel. Yes. I thought, oh, this is. And so for me, I thought that was very helpful because it applies everywhere, like not right. just in defending Christianity. Right. So that was just very helpful. Yeah, good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that's the foundation of everything I do in the book is that first chapter sort of laying out the, you know, theology, worldview, and then the culture around us, and then bringing it to the main sort of central focus. And that is our liturgy, how we worship. Mm. And I want to show throughout the book, how all of these things are interrelated and they influence each other. So what does the training of my affections have to do with personal sanctification? Yeah. Well, yeah. So um, like I said a moment ago, our, our theology is, is the first step towards our sanctification, uh, towards living in ways that please the Lord, but it's not enough. Just having brains filled with knowledge does not produce holy living. So the affections are the link between, between our theology and our living. Or like how I like to put it, the, the heart is the bridge between the head and the hands, right? And I think, I think you see this in Paul's epistles. We often recognize that, you know, a lot of times with Paul's epistles, the first half is about doctrine and the second half is about living. What's really fascinating is, is in almost all of his epistles, the link between the two is some sort of discussion of the affections, whether it's the end of Ephesians 3, where Paul has this prayer that their love, that they would, they would grow in their love for Christ, or Philippians has a similar connection point, Colossians, set your affections on things above. There's always this link, or in Romans, you've got this doxology at the end of 11, uh, right? So there's always this link between the doctrinal section and the practical living section, and it's always focused on the affections, on worship, on loving God, on glorifying God with our hearts. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's its role. If you want to be a person who's living a holy life, absolutely, your theology has to be correct, right? But you also, we also have to give careful attention to the, the shaping of our affections for God's truth and ultimately, uh, you know, obviously our affection for God. That is what will ultimately drive us in the end. Yeah, it made me think of a quote from Lewis that the heart should never take the place of the head, but it can and should obey it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fitting into that uh, glasses illustration where how would you know if an affection is off? Well, your theology would tell you if an affection is off. Right. Which you're studying of the scriptures. And then as you correct that affection, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's right. And it, that, then you get to the hands, the doing. But right. uh, so that's great. Uh, so we're going to get even a little bit more specific. So as I start training my affections as a believer, and one of the big areas in the Christian life today is the music we listen to, or we, mm -hmm. we could just say entertainment in general. We're going to get yeah. to other forms of entertainment. But so why would it be beneficial for me as a Christian to not listen to Hillsong, Bethel, some of those types of musical, uh, I don't know what I want to call them, uh, producers? Oops. Right. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the, the, that's a good question because it, it connects with both of these areas we've been talking about, right? So I, there was a big dust up kind of early March on this. I had a couple articles and it was right before that Hillsong documentary came out, which I didn't realize was, was coming, but it was, <laughs> it was fortuitous timing. Uh, providentially, you might for, say. A time and <laughs> a season for everything. Ooh, that's right. Ooh. So, uh, you know, my objection to Hillsong, Bethel, these kinds of groups is, is both because of errant theology and because of errant shaping of the affections, both. Uh, there's, you know, there's some really bad sort of health and wealth, prosperity, theology, and some of the lyrics of, of, of those groups, or, uh, you know, Pentecostal theology um, that's in the lyrics. So even just from a theological standpoint, there would be a problem. But my initial, my articles on, on those groups, what I was trying to show is that that's not the only problem with them. And that even if some of their songs or other groups have songs with lyrics that have good theology, that's not where we stop in our discernment. Because again, art, whether it be music or like you said, all forms of entertainment, you know, movies, television, visual painting, you know, all, all of these forms of, of art, poetry, uh, they, they don't communicate or shape primarily on the discursive level. They don't primarily shape our theology. Words do, but poetry, you know, music, they, they don't shape on a, on a didactic level in terms of our theology. What they're doing is they're shaping our worldview. They're shaping our hearts. They're shaping our imaginations. And so we have to be just as discerning about, about that sort of formation as we are, are about our theological formation. And when I look at groups like Hillsong, Bethel, uh, and, and, and Elevation and these sorts of groups, their theology, and this gets right to the heart of what I'm arguing in the book, their theology is also coming through in the musical performances themselves. So that even if you were to take away the lyrics or you were to put perfectly theologically correct biblical lyrics with that music, the music itself embodies a theology that as a cessationist, for example, I would say is inconsistent with what I believe. I expect charismatics to worship with music that embodies their charismatic theology. What bothers me is when cessationists worship like charismatics, not that the lyrics are necessarily articulating a charismatic theology, but the music itself is embodying a charismatic theology. And that's true of most of contemporary praise and worship music. Uh, if you look at where that music came from, it came out of Pentecostalism. Not that not, it's not just a guilt by association, though. I'm not saying don't don't do it because of where it comes from. I'm saying look at where it comes from. It's no surprise then that the music embodies the theological persuasion of the people who produce it. And so I would object on both of those levels to you know those groups like Hillsong. But I would object to a lot of other contemporary groups that might have theology that's closer to mine, but they're nevertheless communicating embodied theology through the music that actually contradicts the correct lyrics that they're singing. So there's a lot of really good stuff there and a lot that could really be unpacked. <laughs> so a listener like cessationist, you might not know what that is. Uh, we look it up and his book, he really walks through the, the forms uh, of worship, which is something we're going to get to in a little bit. So we're still yeah. just kind of wetting your appetite a little bit here. And some of the stuff that Scott just kind of explained, you're probably like, yeah, I don't like that. Well, just study it out. Listen, uh, listen on. And I would encourage you even to get his book, uh, which by the way, is going to be on sale at Faith Bookstore. 
And so uh, stop in. Always, always have to get it. that plug in for the Facebook yeah. store. You know, it's it's got to happen. Well, and two, yeah. I'd encourage, I did, I did a three article sort of dealing with this whole issue of first, just Hillsong specifically, and then the issue of embodied theology in two posts. So go to g3min.org and, and look at those articles because I can get into some of these things in more depth there. Perfect. No. So I was doing a, I, I, use, I teach a class on denominational theology in the seminary. And so mm-hmm. we have a section on Pentecostal and charismatic groups. And as I was doing research about like six, seven years ago on it, it was interesting. I can't remember who it was. I wish I'd linked, I'd saved the link, but there was a Pentecostal guy who was a leader, I think of the AOG. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about their music. And I was astounded because I'd grown up with this sort of style. And he, he literally said, we need this music because it's the way we call down God. It's like right. the electrical conduit. Right. And I remember thinking, I was just shocked because I'd never heard that. But it is legitimate. Even the dust up on Twitter recently, you had said uh, something along the lines of, we don't call God down to worship. We draw right. near to him. And that right. reversal of direction, I think, yes. is, is theologically huge. It really yeah. is. I mentioned towards the beginning, we don't recognize how much we've been influenced by Enlightenment rationalism. The other thing we, we don't re- recognize that we've been influenced by is Pentecostalism. We have been very influenced by Pentecostal theology to the degree that we sometimes say things or assume things or expect things. And if you really stop and think about it, it again, if you're a cessationist, in other words, you believe that the, that, the, that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased, and you stop and think, wait, what did I just say? It's actually contrary to what you say you believe. And we do that a lot, right? But it is, it is un, uh, unarguable that contemporary praise and worship music came out of Pentecostal theology, and it, it embodies their theology. That, that's where it came, came from, and that's what it actually communicates, this idea of calling God down and experiencing him through what they actually call the sacrament of music. They have a sacramental theology of music, and they think that these feelings that are created by the music, this is the presence of God. This is the manifest presence of God. So we, we've been talking a lot about audio or music forms on our podcast. We talk a lot about the written word and written works. Can you talk to us about visual? So uh, growing up, I watched Charlton Histon's Moses, you know, 10 commandments movie or whatever. Right. Um, And then a while back with the passion recently, we have the chosen. Yeah. Uh, How do all of those affect the affections? Do they, is it audio for it? Does it have no effect? Give us, give us some thoughts on that. Yeah, Absolutely. So this is, this is something I think, again, also needs to be recovered, and that is that different forms of media do different things to us. Words do something different than audio. You know, sound does something different than visual. Static visual does something different than moving visual, right? So they're all, those are all different art forms. There certainly are similarities between them, but they all do something different to us. They affect us in different ways. And in particular, as we talk about this issue of, of, for instance, our imagination, which by the way, I'm using that word, I don't mean it in terms of like fiction, right? Uh, historically, imagination simply meant something like worldview, uh, the way in which we view the world, how our conception of reality has been shaped. Um, so do we imagine God, for example, as a sovereign king or as a cruel despot? Do we ma- imagine him as as a shepherd, let's use biblical imagery, right? That's what it's for. Or do we conceive of him as, 
you know, a Santa Claus in the sky, right? These are all ways that people conceive of God, the way that they imagine God. Well, again, we're talking about shaping. How, how is our imagination of God shaped? It's shaped through images because God does not have a body like man. Um, we, we, the, the scripture itself gives us word pictures, shepherd, king, fortress, right? These are metaphors. This is poetry. This is art. So the, the biblical authors moved by the Holy Spirit, the inspired word of God presents us with imagery that forms our conception of God, our imagination of God. But when words do that, what it does is we read the words, we read the image, and then our imagination, our God-given faculty of imagination begins to work, and we sort of form within our own you know, conception these, these images in print. Visual images work differently. With a visual image, uh, it, the, the, the creator, the artist, is actually doing the work for you already. They're forcing their imagination upon you. Whereas with written word, you've got the, the written image, but then your own imagination sort of shapes your inner conception. Visual images are far more visceral. They, they move us without much thought. With a written image, you have to think, you have to meditate upon it, and then it begins to form and shape your conception. Visual images don't work that way. They bypass the mind. Now, you can stop and force yourself to think, but it's not natural. Visual images tend to move you and shape you without you even knowing what's going on. So, so when you watch Charlton Heston, you know, as Moses or whatever, that, you know, that actor is now interpreting scripture, right? An actor does that. All of the cinematic aspects of the movie are already interpreting, and then they're forcing that interpretation upon you in a very visceral way. That would be the same with any of these Jesus movies, Passion of the Christ, or The Chosen. The, the artists, from the actors to the, you know, the, the, the director, to the guys behind the camera, to the editors, they're using art to interpret the facts of Jesus' life. They're presenting that, those facts in a very visceral way, and that's, a shape, that's shaping your imagination. I believe that God gave us words for a reason. He didn't give us a picture book. He didn't give us a movie. He didn't give us a TV show. The Bible is filled with images, but they're word images. And why did he do that? Well, I think you see why in the second commandment. The second commandment is specifically about this. First commandment, God says, don't worship any other gods. So we've already taken care of that. The second commandment, he's not just stuttering. He's not just saying the same thing again. When he says, don't make for yourself any graven image of me, essentially, He's not saying, don't worship false gods. He's saying, don't attempt to know or worship me through visual means. Mm. Because we, we tend mm. to, as human beings then, worship the image rather than the one mm. that we're supposedly attempting to, to, uh, to represent. God gave us words. He wants us to know him through his word. And so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very much opposed to, for sure, any movie or TV show that pictures God or Christ, but even I'm, I don't like any visual movie or TV show that, that's supposed to communicate scripture to me because God gave us words. 
and he wants our imagination to be formed by his words and even spoken explanation of his words, i.e. preaching, not some sort of visual representation of, of his word. You know, I think some people might say, I don't agree with this, but yeah. if I could just see something, right, it would help me. And I've often thought about the Israelites. They saw how many miracles did they see per capita compared to mm-hmm. other segments of scripture. And that visual didn't actually do, I think today people think, man, if I could just see some things, right. then I'd really believe. We get this video out here. People will believe. Yeah. Well, this, I, is the, I, this is the rich man yeah. and, and Lazarus, right? Please yes. send yes. Lazarus back. And what does Abraham say? If they yep. don't believe Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe the written mm-hmm. word, they're not going to believe even if a man comes from the dead. This is an issue of sufficiency of scripture. You know, I, this, this watching the chosen, it makes the Bible come alive. No, the Bible itself is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You don't need anything else. Do you no. trust the sufficiency Amen. of what God has given you? Trust the word. You don't need all of that other stuff. In, you think in too, apologetics. Oh, go ahead, Andy. In, in apologetics, we bring up the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah. And it's helpful to see the students because we do talk about arguments and whatnot. And I'm not saying yeah. you can't use those. Right. But, but you cannot say that is the thing. Right. Otherwise, the rich man, it, it would have been a totally different outcome because he said, like Abraham says, like, you just need the word. Yep. And I think that's an eye-opening moment for students as far as a sufficiency, even in like something apologetics. Yes. But then translating that over to our worship service or how we live or how we walk with the Lord every day. I'm, I'm very thankful for this. I think this is hugely beneficial. Yeah. And the thought I had too was, what is the sword of the spirit? It is the word of God. Mm-hmm. And the moment you're accepting a skewed interpretation of scripture through a visual means, you know, oh, the Holy, how's the Holy Spirit going to employ that? Right. Uh, and are you, are you hindering the work of God's spirit in someone's heart right. by taking them in a different direction than what the word simply teaches? And there's, there's a reason why we preach in church and not show videos. That's like, right. You know, we need the word. Like that's, that's the, means of the spirit to humble someone's heart exactly the holy spirit has promised to work and he has promised to work through the word that he has inspired mm-hmm. and so again let's let's trust the sufficiency of scripture um and then you know you go you know, with something like the chosen you go a step further and we talked about you know art embodying theology okay well even if this issue of visual versus words wasn't wasn't an issue now you've got uh, uh you know a mormon company vid angel producing this yeah, Dallas Jenkins is a quote-unquote evangelical, but he's come out and said, uh, you know, the, the LDS worships the same Jesus that I do. And he even came out recently with a clarification. Well, no, I mean, I didn't mean all LDS worship the same, but, the, <laughs> but my friends that I know who are LDS, they certainly love the same Jesus that I do. And so if, if, if that's what he thinks, then I can only imagine, I've not watched the show on purpose, obviously because of my convictions, but I've read, certainly read some things and it's no surprise that errant theology would be influencing his production. And so the, even the interpretation of Jesus that he's portraying in that show is an unbiblical interpretation. In my cults class, I often say when you assess a denomination, whether it's you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or even something like Catholicism or another denomination, you always assess the doctrine, not the adherent. Yeah. Because the adherent may have weirdo views, sure. but what is it that you're looking at? You're looking at right. the doctrinal statements and what they believe. Right. So those LDS people, if they, I, I find it very hard to believe they really do think of right. Jesus the same way. But even if they did, the company, if they're following Mormon 
theology. That's right. It can't well, be the same. We'll go back one step. You know, they might even mentally think that there's no difference, but where's the difference lie? Their affections, how their affections yeah. have been formed in yeah. this area of worship of who Christ is. And so, especially you mentioned different denominations. I think it's very common for the the normie, like the normal person, like the normal Catholic, the normal mm-hmm. Lutheran, uh, dare we say, like the normal Baptist, uh, to mm-hmm. not really understand the confessional statements. Yeah. Uh, and so they they have a, an idea of what they think they believe. They might not know the creed, but uh, where you can very easily see a difference in belief system is is the affections. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that becomes very common quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. But even with the LDS, I mean, what we're, when we're talking about Jesus, we're not talking about some like third, fourth tier little yeah. doctrinal yep. aberrance, right? They, they believe that Jesus was created and his brother is the devil. So, I mean, this is like core theology. You can't, it's not the same Jesus. I'm sorry. You know, and, and you can't just say, well, yep. Jesus of Nazareth is just this, this, this historical figure. No, they worship a false Christ. And we, we can't, we can't just overlook that. They're not Christians. Yep. So I think that's going to get us a really nice, give us a really nice bridge into the book. So uh, obviously worship, musical form is going to be part of training our affections, part of our Mm -hmm. sanctification. And it's a way that we live out our theology. So now we have this book changed from glory to glory, a liturgical history liturgical story of the Christian faith. Make sure I say it correctly. Yeah. So what is a liturgical story yeah. of the Christian faith? Like, what are you doing in this book? Excellent. So uh, this book was, is basically the culmination of 10 years teaching a course um, at Southwestern Seminary. And now I'm, I'm basically teaching the same course at Grace, um, in which I'm, I'm trying to show you know, it, the history of worship, basically from Genesis 1-1 to the present, but making this argument that the way that we worship is not separate from our theology or our worldview or how we live, you know, how we live in the culture. Because that's, I would suggest, typically how many Christians think about worship today. We have our right beliefs, um, we may, probably don't even think about worldview or we just, that's just another way of saying right beliefs. And that may or may not be connected to our living in the culture, but typically we think of the culture around us as just basically neutral. And so we, you know, there's, there's nothing, nothing to think of, think there at all. And then worship is just something separate. Most Christians approach worship from, a, from merely what I like to call an expressivist sort of perspective. Like we get together on Sunday with a bunch of other Christians to just express our hearts of praise to the Lord. Whereas what I'm trying to show is that, yes, of course, there's some truth to that. We, we express to the Lord what's in our hearts. But actually, what's more significantly happening is that our worship, as we've already sort of touched on this, is both an embodiment of our theology and it is influencing our theology. There's sort of a cyclical thing that's happening. There's a Latin phrase that, that is attributed to a couple of different people, but came, came, you know, came into, into the uh, discourse very early on in, uh, in, the new, in the early church. 
It's Lex Orendi, Lex Credandi, the law of prayer or worship, the law of belief. And what that phrase was trying to communicate was this cyclical relationship between what we believe and how we worship. And so what I'm trying to show in the book, when I say liturgical story, what I mean is tracing historically the way that the way how God's people worshiped influenced how they believed and how what they believed influenced the way that they worshiped. So there's that relationship. But then also bringing into that this important component of the affections, worldview, the heart, what we've been talking about for the the last uh, few minutes, because that's part of it. Again, I've already mentioned our worship doesn't just influence our theology. It also shapes our affections. So that's really important to recognize. And then also this issue of culture, which as I briefly show in the first chapter of this book, but I articulate in far more depth in uh, my book, By the Waters of Babylon, Worship in a Post-Christian Culture. Culture is way of life. That's what it is. It is the way that groups of people behave. It is how we live, how we act, our customs, uh, the, the, the habits that we've formed. And so if that's what culture is, which you know I, I show in By the Waters of Babylon, and I reference a little bit in this book, the early uh, anthropologists who developed this idea of culture, that's how they defined it. It is the way people live in a particular civilization. If our culture is the way that we live, then that can't be neutral. The way that we live is always a reflection of what we believe. And so what I'm trying to show then is as Christians, we've got to think about these things because we need to make sure on the one side of the equation that how we are living in the culture correctly reflects the the beliefs that we believe so strongly are taught in the word of God. But then also we're thinking about, okay, how does culture shape how we believe? And then in particular, which is the major focus, how does our worship shape our theology? Because the fact of the matter is that, um, I forget how you described it a a moment ago, the the, just the average Christian, right? The, 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 just the guy in the pew, they're, they're mostly, their theology is being shaped mostly by by worship, by how they're worshiping week in and week out. The church probably has a doctrinal statement, but how many average pew sitter, you know, kind of goes to the doctrinal statement, thinks really carefully about what they believe? No, they're shaped by the worship. They're shaped by week in and week out, these, these habit-forming practices. That's all what liturgy means. It means habit-forming practices that shape the way that we believe and shape our affections. And so the book, I call it a liturgical story because essentially it is a history. It traces history, but I use that word story in particular too, because I want, you know, you hear history and you think, you know, just sort of dry catalog of facts. No, I want to show that the aesthetic aspect of what we're talking about, this is a story and this is, and I'm hoping the book, I tried to write it in an engaging way. The book itself will shape the way that people think uh, about worship as well. So, um, so that's 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 what I mean. It's it's tracing that relationship, that sort of fourfold cyclical relationship from the beginning of Genesis all the way through Scripture, through early church history, through the Reformation, through the Enlightenment, and on into the modern period to help us to recognize how worship, theology, worldview, and culture have all interrelated throughout the centuries. That sounds fascinating. It's it's something that you know, most guys that have studied theology 
the majority of them don't go into a worship study. It's systematic or new Testament or old Testament. Right. And it's very, I think very few guys in seminary are, are thinking about this aspect of their ministry. Yeah. And again, I I think that's a very modernist post enlightenment way of viewing theology. It's just systematic, rational, you know, I think a lot of theologians wish the Bible, why didn't God give us a systematic theology? It would be so much better. No, it wouldn't have. God gave us literature. It communicates theology, and theology is propositional, but it has to be more than that for all of the reasons we've talked about, for the shaping of our affections and for the forming of our worship. You know, it's interesting on that note, uh, we're kind of behind we don't fully understand this, like you're saying, but someone who does understand this mm-hmm. is Hollywood and advertising. Oh, absolutely. No one, no one makes a commercial with like linear propositional truths. No one writes a movie trying to get across their ideas. They try to shape you by putting something you delight in in front of them or just demonstrating it. So it is interesting. I think that's yeah. a really, people might say that's not how it works, but I think it would be hard to prove that, especially the way we entertain ourselves and what we do every day. If if that wasn't the way it worked, Hollywood would be ripping out logical arguments, you know, every other day of the week. Right. And and if you read any theologian before the Enlightenment, this is how they talk. It they, you know, they yes, they have quote unquote systematic theologies, what we might think of as that, but it's much more focused on the affections. I mean, you read Calvin's Institutes, which is robust theology, it's very devotional. It's not dry you know, prose, or you read Luther, you read early church fathers, you read the Bible, and it doesn't come to us as just A plus B plus C, here's the facts, folks. Um, it, 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 it is meant to shape our, yes, our minds, but also our hearts. So I would just urge anybody who wants to think about this, you know, don't, don't mimic theology, mim- or don't mimic Hollywood, mimic pre-modern theologians, mimic scripture, Mimic, mimic how, how theology was taught prior to the impact of Enlightenment rationalism. So within your book, you develop, a, it seemed to me like a biblical theology of worship in the first yeah. two parts. You go to the Old Testament and then the New Testament. Yeah. Then you look at more of a historical theology. So essentially, this is what the Bible says. Then this is how the church has historically tried to flesh that out, to live it right. out. Yeah. Uh, and so I really found it very valuable. And you even brought up a couple of points that I hadn't interacted with. Uh, for example, one point I hear a lot of people talking about is you need to worship with a genuine heart. Mm-hmm. You need to have genuine worship. God doesn't want lip service. We yeah. seem to hear that argument all the time. But you went through like the sacrifices and the festivals and uh, in the Old Testament and, um, and you saw these patterns. Mm-hmm. of a way of worship. Right. Uh, could you maybe talk about that a little bit? More? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, one of the, one of the things I try to uh, point out in, that, in those, those two sections that deal with Old and New Testament is that we've got two things going on. You, you absolutely do have a focus on the heart, but you also have a focus on the act, right? You have both, the external and the internal. And depending on, how you, on who you're talking to today, we tend to emphasize one to the neglect of the other. So you get a lot of people today who say, well, as long as you're coming with a genuine, sincere heart, then it doesn't matter how you worship. Well, the problem with that is 
all of the instructions throughout the scripture about how we are supposed <laughs> to worship. Why did that matter? You have some people like, for instance, I think the, my favorite example of this is with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offer strange fire to the Lord. It seems, you know, th- th- there's not a heart problem there necessarily. They're trying to worship Yahweh. They're trying to show him honor, but they do so in a way, as Moses says, which the Lord had not commanded them. So their heart was not their problem necessarily. What they did was a problem, which actually revealed some internal issues. They should have trusted the Lord and what he had commanded. Um, so, so that's a problem. And then, of course, you get other people who it's all about just doing the right things, following the rules, and you get condemnation as th- of that as well towards the end of the Old Testament and on into the Gospels. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So you see an emphasis on both. Neither is more important than the other. They are, both are important. God does want true sincerity of heart, but if you have a true heart that wants to honor him, you're going to obey what he has commanded, and you're not going to add to what he has commanded. So if you understand that then, then absolutely, yes, the heart is important, but then, okay, what does the Bible teach in terms of how we ought to approach him? And we might look at something like the Old Testament and say, well, all of those sacrifices, they've, they've passed away. We don't have a temple anymore. We don't have an earthly priesthood. So none of that is relevant to us as Christians. And and what I want to say is, okay, well, but how does the New Testament talk about that stuff? Yes, with Christ's coming, those have fallen away, but it's very instructive. And this is where I think the book of Hebrews is so critical. And I have kind of a whole chapter where I develop a Christian theology of worship, mainly from Hebrews, because it shows the continuities and discontinuities between the Old Testament ways of worship and the New Testament ways of worship. And what the author of Hebrews says is, yes, those things have passed away. Why? Because they are shadows. Okay, well, what's a shadow? It means that there's something casting the shadow. And so those things have passed away, but they're not irrelevant. They help us to understand the core underlying theology of what it means to worship. And so even now in our New Testament context, the way that we worship should follow that same sort of theological flow. What is that flow? I would summarize it by saying it is the gospel, right? The way that we worship, and this ties into the formative influence, the way that we worship is a way for us as God's people to reenact our covenant relationship with God through the gospel. And by doing that, that continues to disciple and form us. It continues to sanctify us. The gospel is not something that we simply believe for our salvation, and then we set it aside and we go on to bigger and better things. No, the gospel, as Paul says to Titus, continues to train us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So if you look at the patterns of worship in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and then you see these patterns continue in the early church and in the Reformation, what you find is the ordering and the shaping of the elements of worship are an embodiment and reenactment of the gospel. What is the gospel? It begins with God's revelation. So in worship, we begin with God's God's call to worship. God initiates worship. We talked a little bit a while ago about worship not being us inviting God down. No, that's paganism. Paganism is where the worshiper calls to the God and invites him to come. With true biblical worship, just like with the gospel, God is the one who initiates the contact. When we encounter the holy God of scripture, 
we realize we're sinners. We're not worthy to be in God's presence. So what is necessary? Confession of sin and trust in the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. So that's how worship progresses. We begin with a call to worship. We begin with a vision of a holy God. We immediately move to an acknowledgement of our sin, confession of our sin, and then a declaration that those who have put their faith and trust in Christ are forgiven in Christ. Then, as somebody who's been redeemed, I am ready to hear from God. What would you have me to do? Well, there's the preaching, the reading of Scripture, the instructions that God has given to us. A true believer will then dedicate him or herself to the Lord and say, whatever you have commanded, I will do. And the ultimate expression and climax of our relationship with God, whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, the climactic expression of that is a feast. So in the Old Testament, you had all the festivals, the feasts. What were those? Was that just some arbitrary potluck? No, that was the way for God's people to, they were welcome in God's presence. You look at Moses and the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. After they go through all of that progression, it says they beheld God and they ate and drank. To eat in the presence of God is the ultimate expression that we are welcome in his presence. Well, now fast forward to the New Testament. What did Jesus give us as the ultimate expression of the fact that we are welcome in the presence of God because of his broken body and his shed blood? He gave us a feast. And you look into the future, into the eschaton, there will one day be a supper where we will celebrate our marriage to the lamb, Mm. right? This is all connected. And so in in corporate worship, the Lord's Supper is the climax, and then we are sent out, out into the world with a charge to obey the Lord, to take the gospel and with his blessing. So there's a progression that the scriptures present for our worship so that week after week after week, as we reenact the gospel in our worship, that continues to change us from glory into glory, continues to sanctify us, and then we're sent out into the world so that we're worshipers seven days a week based on the sanctification that has happened on the Lord's Day. And so then, yeah, after after developing that in the Old and New Testament, then I show how it's further fleshed out in the church for good or for ill, right? There's problems that then creep into the the both the theology and the worship of the Middle Ages and the Roman church. There's shifts that occur in the Reformation. There's problems that then creep in in the modern period. So I'm trying to show how the church has either uh, continued what scripture teaches or in many ways um, you know, gotten off the path and begun, begun to embody a, a theology that's not uh, taught in scripture in the rest of church history. Man, I don't know. I think that's probably the best promo of someone's book we've ever heard. Like, <laughs> yes. I, don't know. I, I mean, second that. I mean, you just have to li- go back and listen to that again. And just, you're going to get excited about reading that book. Like that's yeah. fantastic. Um, well, like I said, I mean, this, you know, this is, this, this was after teaching this stuff for 10 years. So it's just yeah. like in my bones and um, I'm just, I, I, it needs to be recovered. It's been lost, especially among Baptists. We, we've been so influenced by, by enlightenment rationalism, by revivalism and by Pentecostalism to where our worship is nothing like that anymore. And, you know, th- this book is for more than Baptists for sure, but you know, I'm a Baptist I, you know, I, I recognize how much we've lost this in, in you know, Baptist circles, but broader evangelicalism for sure as well. Um, Church growth movement is another thing that's impacted us for ill. And so I just am really deeply burdened that we recover uh, this way, this biblical way of understanding worship. 
I think what's really great about this is that oftentimes when worship comes up in discussion, it's usually centered on prohibition discussion. Like we can't do this or we can't do that. And that's definitely here. I'm not saying that's not here, but the goal of it is for us to know our creator and to, to walk more. And to me, that's exciting. Yeah. That's like the, the positive reason. The the thing that I want to know is my Lord. And this is an avenue to do that. That's not pagan. I guess maybe that's how you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really, mm, it just gets me all excited. You know, the, the worship wars, you know, really were very surface. They're, they were about symptoms. They were about, mm-hmm. you know, stuff, talk, they, they were about applications. And not that applications are unimportant. I think applications are very important. But you can't deal with applications until you've dealt with the more foundational biblical theological issues. And that kind of thing hardly happens, which is why it's just throwing mud at each other and there's no, there's no progression. Um, I believe applications are important and I have very strong opinions on applications, you know, but I don't deal with a whole lot of applications in the book. That's not, that's not the purpose. My, my goal is not to get people to cross their T's and dot their I's on these particular songs and these, you know, this particular stuff. Um, I mean, even though I'm right on that stuff, you know, you know my, my goal is to get people to Amen. think rightly, <laughs> theologically and biblically, and then comes the application. Then, come, then they absolutely. Let's talk about the application, you know, later. But you know, I I think there there's a lot of people that don't have the right theology of worship. They don't. Uh, they have a very pagan theology. We call God down. We invite Him mm-hmm. to come to us. And so, of course, that's going to impact how we worship. And I'm not going to talk about how you worship until we deal with the theology of worship. And that's that's what the book is about. You know, it was interesting. I was an intern youth pastor a long time ago in another life at an evangelical <laughs> church, we'll just say. And so I was over the youth group with this other guy and they wouldn't sing during song time, the students, the high schoolers. And in trying to address that, we thought, how can we get them? And again, I never would have said, we're trying to call down God. We're trying to be pagan, but we were trying to cultivate some sort of a response like you were talking about. Yes. And our solution was let's paint the youth room floor to ceiling black and then turn the lights off. And then they won't be distracted by peer pressure. And we really thought that would cultivate this (laughs) added, whatever we thought it was, but looking back, it was legitimately just trying to get something to happen Yes. rather than, you know, this other kind of a, we're drawing near to God. I mean, in a sense, it's funny because we had to get just the mood just right. Yeah. And yet you got Paul and Silas in prison after they've been beaten and, they're they're singing right. hymns and it's just yeah. it was biblically bereft and this is like i remember at the time trying 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 and nothing's happening yeah. and i remember thinking what's wrong well now this is like hope this is this is how we lead people this is how we walk ourselves with the lord so it's just yeah. it's a very hope-filled and position you're right it, it is very liberating here's how i like to put it i don't i don't know if i put it quite like this and change from glory into glory um but another shameless plug this came out the same month in february and if you know if this intimidates you uh, maybe start with this. This is just a simple. So, so yeah. Scott's holding up biblical foundations of corporate worship. Yep. And so he was. He, we could see those on the the screen, but oh, listen, you can't see. Oh, this is not video. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it'll yeah, be audio biblical, only. Yeah. Biblical foundations of corporate worship published the same month by this one by Free Grace Press. We we don't believe um, in visual representations of podcasts. I got you. No, I, I appreciate that improperly trains the affections of yes. podcast listeners. Well, I know. I've got to get a horrendous in here. This is horrendous. <laughs> well, I know looking at your three faces would definitely shape people's affections in an inappropriate way. So, oh, you know, ooh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you. Hey. I'll give you two points for that one. That was pretty good. Okay, Scott. All right. I asked so, for um, that one. 
Yeah. So here's how I put it. The, the most the most revealing question you can ask yourself to determine what your theology of worship is, is this. How do you know you've worshiped? How, how do you know you've worshiped? Mm, and good. if your answer is, well, I know I've worshiped when I feel this certain thing, or there's this certain kind of tingle in my spine, or this, you know, there's this certain, you know, whatever. If that's your answer, that's paganism. That's how, how, you know, how, how, do, how do the pagans know that they've encountered their God when he shows himself to them finally after they've cut themselves for, you know, for, for whatever? Rather, the correct biblical answer is, how do you know you've worshipped? You know you've worshipped, to quote Hebrews 10, when you've drawn near to God mm. through the person and work of Jesus Christ mm. with a true heart and full assurance of faith, period. Are, are you going to feel things? Sure, you'll feel things. Feelings are not bad. Our bodies are good. God has given us this. But sometimes those feelings might be exhilaration, tears, goosebumps. Sometimes it might be deep conviction. It might look like tears. Or sometime, sometimes you might not feel anything intense at all. But if you have come with a sincere heart through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you're obeying the commands that God has given you, you are hearing the word preached, read, sung, prayed, and visualized through baptism and the supper, then you have worshipped whether or not you feel anything in particular. Uh, worship is not a feeling, although we have feelings. Worship is not an atmosphere, although there will be some sort of atmosphere. And that, so that is a fundamental question to ask. And I'm afraid most people, whether it be a certain kind of feeling or a certain ritual for more liturgical churches, or you know, for more sort of revivalism-influenced churches, it's this sort of rousing, sort of enthusiastic, slap the back, sing-songy thing. You know, whatever. There's all sorts of different feelings people associate with worship. A lot of people have. It's really idolatry. It is. It is worshiping worship right, rather right. than worshiping God. It's worshiping a certain kind of feeling or a certain kind of music. And so we need to be, we need to be satisfied. We need to reshape our imagination of what worship is. We need to be satisfied to simply obey the regular means of grace that God has given to us in his sufficient word to draw near to God through Christ with a true heart and full assurance of faith, period. And that, that is what the Bible teaches is what we ought to do when we worship. Yeah. Andy, you want to jump in with one last question there? Yeah, I think so. Man, this has been really helpful. I think that for our listeners and even for me, just looking at my background and how I've shifted, this has been very helpful. What are the, what are your main influences as far as people who you've read or who've taught you? Where, where, where have you been influenced to come to this conclusion? Yeah. Um, so a num number of things. I mean, I grew up in a, a really good church with a really good pastor, Mike Harding who, you know, taught, you know, expositional preaching, but also had a strong burden about worship. And whenever he would preach on it, he would deal with it differently than a lot of things I would hear that would deal on the surface level of applications. He always drew things back to the beauty and glory of God. And that was very formative for me very early on and made me want to think more deeply and theologically about how we worship and how that influences our, our practice. So then I began to read people, probably the two earliest figures were Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis, who helped me to understand this component of the affections. 
uh, Jonathan Edwards, the religious affections and some other things, C.S. Lewis, uh, the abolition of man and the four loves and some things that uh, where he's really sort of trying to articulate a pre-modern understanding of the affections. Edwards is living during a time when that kind of understanding is being lost during the first great awakening and people are beginning to sort of define spiritual experience by physical feelings. And Edwards is like, no, those, those feelings are not bad, but they're signs of nothing. They're not good nor bad. They're not signs that the Holy Spirit is working and they're not signs that the Holy Spirit is not working. And so he's sort of redefining things, but he's centering things on the religious affection. So those, those were very, very helpful for me uh, early on and sort of formulating some of these things. Uh, and then, you know, just over the years, interaction with other people, um, friend, friends of mine in discussions, you know, sort of helped formulate these things as well. Um, so, uh, and then just understanding the history, be beginning to study the history. I think one of the first people I read, I think just a series of blog posts by Michael Horton years ago, who was showing the influence of, of Charles Finney and revivalism on sort of shaping our expectations regarding spiritual growth and worship kind of helped me realize, oh, look at the, look at the historical influences that have warped, uh, you know, the way that we've done things. Um, so that was really, really helpful uh, early on as well. Um, so yeah, those were kind of the, some of the you know earliest inf influential thinkers on on my way of thinking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for being here. Yeah, thanks and, for the privilege. Uh, yeah, is, this is an awesome, awesome discussion. I mean, we could we could talk about this for hours. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but we we won't this time. But so if you're listening to this, you've got a lot of great things you could go find. You could find the book Change from Glory to Glory. Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship. You could check out Scott's podcast, By the Waters of Babylon. Uh, or you can just listen to this podcast episode again. We would appreciate that. Yeah. G3 but, uh, Ministries. Yeah, G3 Ministries. What's, yep, G3. what's a, Are there any G3 Ministry things that are happening that our listeners yeah, might be interested in Absolutely. Out? So g3men.org, a lot of content going up there regularly. I, my blog is there. Uh, we have now um, a national conference that's every other year and then regional conferences in the off year. So we've got a regional conference coming up in September in Washington, D.C. or just outside D.C. Uh, that will be on the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, Josh Bice, Virgil Walker, Daryl Harrison, James White, uh, Steve Lawson and I will all be speaking. So that will be really good. Also, germane to this conversation, we host worship biblical worship workshops that are meant to help pastors think through both a biblical theology of worship and then how to plan a service in, you know, along these lines. So um, we, we schedule those throughout the country. There's one hopefully happening in October in Arkansas. So just kind of, you can kind of look on g3men.org for that. Um, so yeah, just g3men.org, a lot of, we're, you know, starting to really ramp up producing resources and books and free curriculum, uh, curricula and articles and all sorts of things that we're hoping will help believers uh, in the days to come. What's G3 stand for? Gospel, grace, and glory. Uh, that's excellent. Yep. Very good. Well, thanks again, listener, for being here. We will see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.